So if you have your Bibles, I'd like to encourage you to open them to Matthew chapter 26. There is a Bible app event for this. You can follow along if you would like to. You know, um, a lot of things happened at that first communion. That's what we're talking about today. And if you put Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together, it's almost overwhelming the amount of information the Bible has. Everything from John containing the high priestly prayer to the business where there's the washing of the feet and and to the conflict about who's the greatest in the kingdom. Uh, Matthew, though, when he speaks about the meal itself, he only he only has 11 verses, uh, 20 through 30, uh, where he speaks about that. And so that's what we're going to look at. We're just going to look at Matthew's take on it in, uh, in Matthew chapter 26, verses 20 through 30. And we'll read those later in the service today. Um, but you can follow along in your Bible when we get there or your Bible app if you would like to. Speaking of Bible apps, uh, how many of you have a, a cell phone? Put your hand up. Let me see. Yeah, most of you, right? Yeah. yeah. I have a love-hate relationship with my cell phone. Do you? I think a lot of us do, right? We, we love it and we hate it. I, I love my cell phone in the way that it serves me and, and how convenient it is. For example, yesterday I was driving a men's group and I was almost in the Clearfield uh, for the men's breakfast that we have on Saturday mornings and uh, my phone rang and it was Jim Thorpe. And uh, Jim doesn't call me at 7.10 on a Saturday morning. I thought it was an emergency and it kind of was. He said, Pastor, I came into church and the doors are stuck wide open. And what had happened is I had gone in there the previous day and I had let the water out of the dehumidifier and I forgot to let those doors shut. So it had been open overnight. If you see a goat running through here, a deer or a raccoon, that's how it got in probably, you know. And I said, yeah, go ahead and close. He said, I don't know how to close them. They're electrically held open. I, the cell phone helped me out. I could tell him what to do and we got everything closed up and Jim said, I policed the entire building. There was no wildlife in here. So that was good, yeah. It's a handy thing. I love my cell phone because I was doing, last Saturday, I had to do a memorial service, a funeral service uh, at Kermansville Lake. And so my cell phone, of course, reminded me of that. I had the material in front of me and I was on my way. Here I come into Kermansville Lake in my suit, you know, my tie, ready to do a memorial service. I thought, I don't know which pavilion it's in, right? Which pavilion am I supposed to go to? So I opened up my cell phone while I was driving down the hill. I took out like two kids on bicycles and a raccoon. And, uh, and, and I looked and I had written, because I know how bad my memory is, I had written pavilion number one. Drove right in just like I knew it all along and did the funeral. I love my cell phone. On a much more serious note, I was at Mahaffey Camp and I had my cell phone there and it rang and it was Huck Snyder. And he said, Pastor, you know my wife's on hospice. Can you come today, please? Absolutely. I'll stop what I'm doing. And I drove from Mahaffey right down to Grampian, was able to, to pray and read scripture. And that's for I love my smartphone, but I hate it too. You hate yours? I hate it, not because of the way it's always chirping and I'm always getting texts and always getting phone calls. I want to get texts and phone calls. That's why I pay $60 a month, right? I want to get that information. But what I hate is a thing, and I'm probably going to coin a phrase that you've never heard here before. Have you ever heard this phrase? Dropped calls. Of course you've heard that phrase, right? We all get them, dropped calls. And I don't know why, but all of a sudden my phone, when I'm going up the Lumber City Road, which I used to have coverage all the way to Mahaffey, for some reason or other, there's three places there where it dropped a call. I'm talking to a woman. I'm talking to Bonnie. Her husband has MS, and, and, and we're talking together. And as I'm talking to her, she's talking, and, she, and I'm talking, and then she starts saying, do you hear me? Pastor, do you hear me? Do you hear me? Do you hear me? Nope. She's gone. That's weird. So I call her back. Okay, yeah, go ahead, Bonnie. What were you saying? Can you hear me, Pastor? Can you hear? Nope. It's gone again. Over the period of two miles, it's, gone, it's drop and call. And I'm like, I hate that about myself, and I hate how it drops calls in important situations. That's just unacceptable. But in a sense, my cell phone is not a lot, and the conversations I have on my cell phone are not a lot different than sometimes the conversations I have with God. 
Because occasionally I might be talking to God and as I'm talking, all of a sudden I get distracted by something because I'm moving, just like my car's moving while I'm talking. I, I'm, do, I'm walking over here to the kitchen and getting some water and I'm talking to God or I'm driving down a road and I'm talking to God or I'm mowing a lawn and I'm talking to God and listening to him and all of a sudden a call gets dropped because, because I got distracted. And I think about how does that feel from God's perspective sometimes? It's probably a little bit like when I'm talking to my wife I'm telling her, you're not going to believe what happened yesterday. I was over at the coffee shop yesterday, and, and, and then I think, oh, you know what? I need to go into my computer and do something in here. And she's standing in the kitchen like, what? You just walked out in the middle of a conversation. Oh, yeah, dropped call. You know? Or she's talking to me. Steve, I need to talk to you about something. Can I have your attention? Absolutely, honey. What's going on? Well, I want to talk to you about my next appointment. Uh, yeah, okay. Let me, I think the mower needs gas. You know? And she's like, you just walked out in the middle of a conversation. Dropped call. And it happens because I'm on the move. My brain, whether you believe this or not, my brain is always working. And it's always on the move. And it's kind of like my car going down the highway. I get dropped calls when I'm talking to God sometimes. And that's not something that I want. That's not something he wants. I think that's one of the reasons we have communion. So we can stop moving. So we can stop talking. So we can stop surfing. Got your version Bible app open? Good. Facebook? Not good. So we can stop gaming. So we can stop reading. And so we can listen. And so we can speak to God without having a dropped call. Stop. Communion. As I was preparing a sermon, my wife came over and she looked over my shoulder. We were talking about something. She looked and she said, wow, that's right. I never thought of that before. I've always thought of communion as being rooted in the word communication. It's not. Communication and communion are both rooted in the idea of common union. That when we come to the communion table, we come being united commonly with God. And we have a common union with him. And that which unites us is our faith in Christ. It unites us to him and it unites us to one another. We are not united here this morning because we all like the same sports. I mean, there's some people here that they don't even know that hockey is a sport. Don't you pity them, right? And there are others here that think NASCAR is a sport. Don't you pity them, right? Now that I've offended at least a third of you, you understand that our union is not based in our appreciation of sports. Some people don't like the Steelers. What's up with that? It's hard to imagine, isn't it? Right? Yeah. So you see, it isn't sports that unites us. And it's, it's not our political perspectives that unite us because I know you and you have diverse political opinions. You do. And that's okay because we're not united around a political perspective. And it's not even that we like the same kind of music that unites us. You're united with the early service. They sing hymns, you sing this stuff. I'd sing the Beatles if you'd let me, right? That is not what unites us. We're united by our faith in Christ. And when we find ourselves divided, unable to engage in common union, it is probably because our faith in Christ has taken a back seat to something else. It is our faith in Christ that unites us. Communion is about being united with God and one another. And such a union is really the fundamental, I, by that I mean the primary, 
the, the most important, the central reason that we are here. We don't gather as a church to receive good moral teaching. The Bible is filled with good moral teaching, and I give you good moral teaching here, and you get it in small groups and in Sunday school, but that is not why we gather as a church. If you're only here, or even primarily here, so that you, and especially your teenagers, and especially your children, and especially those other people, can get good moral teaching so everyone behaves the way you think they should, you got a problem. Because the reason we're here is something far greater than just good moral teaching. The phrase for that is moralistic therapeutic deism. And it is so common in the church that we think the reason we're here is to learn right from wrong. We will learn right from wrong if we're inside the Bible, but that is not why we gather together. We gather together for a reason that is bigger than that. And you're not here to get your weekly shot in the arm. I hear people say it, and I love to hear them say it. I go to church because it gives me that shot in the arm to get me through the week. Good. That's good. I mean, hearing about God and from his word and singing songs of worship with other people at your side and before you, and and even the, the idea of the prayer time, and when Josh expresses his heart or any other leader expresses in his words what is on your heart, that is bound to give you a shot in the arm. That's a good thing, but that is not the primary reason we gather here. And we are not here to be with our friends and family. That kind of might step on your toes a little bit, right? Because you got a lot of friends and family here. Pastor, <laughs> that's one of the best things about coming to Kerwinsville Alliance. My, my friends and family, I love coming to see them. Yes, me too. I don't know that I've ever loved a group of people more than I love you. And you are my friends and family. It's a beautiful thing. But that should not be the primary reason that I am here, nor that you are here. I spent decades, and I know that uh, Pastor Mullins did as well, back in the day when they had the church growth movement, you know, and all that material we went, all those seminars we went to. And and something they said (laughs) over and over again in those seminars was this that the last words you will hear the first church of blank say go something like this. We're just a loving family. And it seems the smaller that that congregation gets, the more they say that phrase, we're just a loving family. And people that paid attention to what was happening when that mentality became the reason people gathered together realized that's going to lead to the closing of those doors if that is the reason they get together. And the problem isn't that we're a loving family. The problem is, what word in that sentence do you think is a problem? You're right. Just. If that's all we are, a loving family, that might feel good, but we are cheating ourselves out of the biggest reason, the fundamental reason we come here. And fourth, this might sound funny, coming from a man who devotes his life to teaching you the word of God. We are not here to learn more about God. We're not here to learn more about God. Hopefully you are learning about God. And honestly, I devote a lot of my time to helping you learn about God. But I'm just going to tell you this. There are better teachers than me, online and on the radio, that can teach you about God. I know that's hard to believe, but you know it's true. We're not here to receive good moral teaching. We're not here to get our weekly shot in the arm. We're not here to be friends and family. We're not here to learn more about God. We do all those things. We enjoy all those things. All those things are precious gifts to us, 
But communion reminds us that we gather as a church because God has called us together. In fact, the very word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia. And that word ekklesia means called ones or called out ones. We are the ones that God has called out of the world to be his own. We are the ones that God has called to get together, to assemble in, here's the word, common union. He's called us to this, and that's why we're here. And Jesus taught us what to do when we're together. He taught us to pray together, to love one another together, to sing together, to serve together, to celebrate together, to remember together. Do this in remembrance of me. We're called together. And we come together fundamentally because God has called us together and we come here to encounter God personally, to commune with God, to experience common union with him. Communion. Let me ask you something. Have you ever ever been driving down the road on these Pennsylvania hills and inside elsewhere? And you see a car pulled over on the side of the road and the person inside is on his cell phone. You ever seen that? I think you probably have, right? I'm I'm, I'm the kind of guy that when I see a car pulled over, I look and I make sure everyone's okay, you know? Um, Just because I want to help if I can. Uh, And and often, I would say probably nine out of 10 times when I look, the person's on the phone. And and I think, what what are they doing that for? Because in the state of Pennsylvania, you can still pick that thing up and hold it up to your ear and not get a ticket. Don't do that in New York. A good friend of mine did. $200 later, he learned that that was against the law there, right? So what's this guy doing? Why does he pull over on the side of the road to use his cell phone? Most likely, it's because that conversation is important. It is too important to risk losing cell service. He doesn't want to be distracted by the things going on around him when the other person is giving him information. He wants to be able to hear that, to focus on it, to understand it. And he wants to be able to speak with clarity to the person on the other end of the phone, to to talk to him and, and make sure that the words he's saying are correct. That's what communion does for us. Communion is the time when you pull your car over to the side of the road and you say, I'm not going to let anything else distract me. I I can talk to God anywhere. I can talk to God driving down the road better than I can in church. That's a lie. Because you're distracted by everything in the world. Even here, you're distracted. We got about this point in the first service. People were starting to come in. I looked back, I said, hey, close the doors back there. You're distracting us. I didn't say it that way, but that's what it amounts to, right? So what can we do in communion is we pull over to the roadside to talk with God in this atmosphere that is conducive to such a conversation. So if we're here to call, at the call of God, because he called us to gather, and if we're here as well to experience his presence, then maybe we should ask the question, what is it that God wants to say? And maybe the answer to that question lies in the idea of, well, what did Jesus say at this communion meal. What does he say to the 12 in these 11 verses that you opened to so long ago, you wonder, is he ever gonna get to the Bible? What does he say in these 12 verses to those who he called together for common union in the upper room? And he really says three things according to Matthew. First, he speaks of our common failings. He speaks of our common failings. We're going to look at six verses, 20 through 25. So if your Bibles are open, we're going to begin here and see how Jesus says none of us 
are unbreakable. And how he points this out, not in a mean way, but he points it out in a way that gets the attention of everyone in the upper room. Have you ever been with a group of people, maybe you're teaching a Sunday school class or a small group, and you want to get them into the material, and you're like, I don't know how to do this because those guys are talking about fishing, and those women over there, they're talking about this great sale they found at Kohl's, and, and these people, you know, and you're like, hey, everybody, pay attention to me, you know? That's just not, that is unbecoming. And so Jesus doesn't do that. But Jesus does something that absolutely stops them in their tracks. And they're the first words right there in 2620. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. Well, that's going to get your attention. Right there, that's going to get your attention. And that's Jesus' intent. Jesus doesn't have to be this vague about what he's saying. He doesn't have to say, one of you will betray me, because he knows who will betray him. He, he, He still doesn't tell him, though. And they do what I would do. Look at verse 22. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after another, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Surely you don't mean me, Lord. It isn't me that you mean, is it, Lord? Now, you might think to yourself, maybe you won't, but I would think to myself, if Jesus knows who this is, then why does he make everyone wonder if it's them? I worked at a construction site for a couple of weeks where the foreman would periodically say at the end of the day, he would say, well, some of you were loafing today. I saw some of you loafing today, and I want to tell you, your job is in jeopardy. We may just send you off this construction site. If that continues, it won't be tolerated. You're on the edge of termination. Surely not me, boss. (laughs) I want to tell you, that's not good leadership. That's going to make everyone uneasy. It's going to damage morale. In a case like that, if you have someone who's lazy and loafing on a job, a good leader knows, go to the guy or the girl who's loafing and say, you're loafing and you need to stop it because if you don't, your job's in jeopardy. Go right to the person and discuss the problem. So why would Jesus not do that? Why would Jesus throw it out for everybody? One of you will betray me. It's not because he's not a good leader, you understand. He's a great leader. He is the leader. So it's not because of that. Well, look at the next verse, verse 25. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand in the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him, but woe to the one who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Wow. So now Jesus is kind of up in the ante here. You know, this is a serious sin. It's a serious sin, and you'd be better off dead if you're guilty of this kind of thing. And they still don't know. Who's he talking about? Until Judas finally asks what the others asked three verses earlier. Look at verse 25. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus says, You said it so. You have said so. Yep, it's you. And while I think that the other 11 were probably deeply saddened to see the reality of this, that one that they had been with for three years was going to betray the one they loved, I'm thinking there was probably a a kind of collective, I'm glad it's not me. I'm glad it's not me. Why would Jesus put them through that? It's not because he lacks the courage to confront Judas personally. It's not because he wants to kind of shake the bushes and see if there's anyone else that's been thinking of doing the same thing. I don't think it's either of those. 
I believe Jesus is doing this because he wants to remind all of them of their common tendency to fail. Listen to this sentence. There, except for the grace of God, go Peter, Andrew, James, the son of Zebedee, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, and Stephen Shields. You get it? (laughs) There, except for the grace of God, go I, just like Judas. Unless you think, well, I don't know that anybody else would have done that. Peter is going to do something that is tantamount to the same kind of thing before it's all over. The scripture says he calls down curses on himself. Do you know what that means? I'll be damned before I'll be one of his. Wow. If that's not nearly as bad as Judas, then what is? None of us are unbreakable. We share common failings. And when the Bible talks about this meal in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And maybe that's what Jesus is doing for the, for the 11 and Judas. One of you will betray me. Why don't you examine yourself? Why don't you look into your own heart? Whether that was his intention at that instant or not, that is his intention for us today. That we would look into our own heart and notice our common failings. Notice our sin. Communion is a time where God speaks to us concerning our common failings. And it's a time when he speaks to us concerning the answer to our common failings. And the answer is kind of a theme in all of Jesus' teaching. Faced with their common failings, the disciples are again made aware that they can't live this life on their own. They can't do it on their own. Good night, I could have been Judas there, except for the grace of God, go I. And they can't have spiritual life apart from Jesus. And John tells us, when he's telling us about this evening that they're gathered together, let's slip out of Matthew and think about what John says. In chapter 15, verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If anyone remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. And then he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. I just like the way the King James sounds when it says, without me, ye can do nothing. The, the, the answer to your common failing is Jesus. And so right after he exposes their sin, he reminds them of what he's been saying for the past three years. You need me. You need a savior. You need the lamb of God to take away your sin. You need to be forgiven. You need a savior. And I am he. Now, that might not be readily evident to someone who's reading this in the 21st century. But I can guarantee you that these Jewish, religious Jewish men who were gathered with Jesus, who had probably spent the last two Passovers, this is probably the third time they've had Passover with him, and they had been having Passover since their infancy because they're good Jewish people. So every year, just like you have Christmas, they have Passover. They've been celebrating this, and Israel has been celebrating it for centuries. And for them, the Passover meant release from bondage, freedom, because it remembered a time when Israel was in captivity in Egypt. And God was delivering them from that captivity. And in order to punish Egypt for not letting them go, God brought a curse that was going to kill the firstborn of every household. It was the wrath of God that was going to come. 
And God instructed them to take a brush and to dip it into the blood of a lamb and to paint the sides of their door and the top of their door and down their door, paint their doorposts with that. And when the angel of God's wrath came to kill the firstborn in every household, when he came, if he saw the blood of the lamb, he would pass over that house. Passover. They knew what this, what this feast, what this holiday, what this meal entailed. Freedom from slavery, freedom from captivity. And it all came from God. And Jesus is making himself, listen to this sentence. Jesus is making himself the centerpiece of the Passover meal. He says in Matthew 25, verse 26, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. What? You know, this is your body, Jesus? This is about you? And then in the very next verse, verse 27, then he took the cup and when he given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. Wait, the blood of the covenant was the blood of the lamb that was put on the doorposts. The blood of the covenant was the blood that caused the angel of God's wrath to pass over that house. And now you're saying this cup is your blood of the covenant? Read the text. Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. They had likely celebrated Passover with Jesus the year before and the year before. But this year it's different. He is now telling him he is the centerpiece of their salvation, that he is their deliverer, that he is the lamb that is slain by whom, by whom their sins can be taken away, that he is the bread of life, that he is the cup of blessing, that he is a savior. And just as Jesus focused their attention on their need for salvation at that meal 2,000 years ago, this meal focuses our attention on our need for salvation through Christ alone. And it tells us he's the answer to our common failings. What does Jesus say at this, at this meal? He says, there, except for the grace of God, go you. All of us are moral failures. But I am the answer to it because I'm going to the cross to die to pay for your sins. He speaks to them. And he does this right in the face, right in the face of immense suffering. He knows that when this meal is over, he's going to the cross. He knows that. And still, he takes time to speak peace to them. He speaks of their place in eternity. He speaks of our place in eternity in these last couple verses. In verse 29, Matthew wraps up Jesus' words with, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When I had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You know why <laughs> he's saying, I'll drink this again with you in my Father's kingdom. It's because he knows that he's going to be betrayed and he knows what that will do to them. He knows that he's going to be arrested and he knows what that will feel like for them. He knows that he's going to be tried across justly and then beaten and hang on a cross. He knows they will watch him carry that cross and fall through the city and he knows what that will do to them. Oh, Wow. He knows that he will die on that cross. And he's thinking about how hard that will be for them. And so he says, 
I won't be drinking of the fruit of the vine but for a while, <laughs> but I will drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And in those few words, he is really affirming what he's been saying for three years. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. God is in control, and you don't have to fear. The next time that we sit down to a meal, it'll be in our Father's kingdom, and it will be glorious. It will be good. And no matter what you see, no matter what darkness you see happening, whether it's a shooting of innocent people at a Walmart, or whether it's another terrible thing happening with refugees, or whether it's the Son of God himself hanging on the cross, the kingdom of God is at hand, and you can have hope. And you never have to despair. Never have to despair. Whatever you're facing today, that is what Jesus speaks to you about at communion. When you pull your car over and you sit here at the side of the road and celebrate communion, whatever choices you're dealing with, whatever struggle you're facing, whatever joy you're celebrating, whatever questions you might have, whatever direction you may need, whatever encouragement you may wish for, you will find it in an encounter with the living God because that is why he has called you here, to encounter him personally. You see, this God who sees all our common failings and fixes them, he speaks peace to you in this common union. So listen. Listen to his heart with your heart. Listen to his thoughts with your mind. Listen to his spirit with your spirit. Because we are here to encounter God. And he has things to say. Listen to him.